0: VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverseimpact.
1: In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, We've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid Conversations about connecting and communicating.
0: I started this whole journey by going to a flat earth convention. There were 650 flat earthers there. I went there to learn uh, how to talk to science deniers, and I wanted to start with the most elemental ones I could find, because I thought if I could talk to them, then I could talk to climate deniers, who are the ones I'm really worried about that, you know, then I could talk to anti-vaxxers. That's Lee
1: McIntyre. In researching his new book called How to Talk to a Science Denier, he began with a deep dive into the alternative reality of people convinced against all the evidence that the earth is flat. What he learned there taught him valuable lessons about how and how not to talk with people who persist in denying science. This is going to be really interesting because you study one of the most important questions of our time, maybe the most important question, the very thing that's going to help us survive as a nation and as a species, and I'm speaking of science, is threatened by people who deny science and deny facts having to do with things other than science how How long have you been working on this? over fifteen years, I think. Right? yeah,
0: i've I've um, been a philosopher for about thirty years, and um a philosopher of science, just in my study, uh, doing all the things that philosophers of science do. And while I was doing that, the uh, science deniers started to knock very loudly at the gate. And I got interested in, how it was that philosophers of science and other philosophers could help to fight back against this because we've been arguing for a hundred years over what's special about science and all of a sudden here are these people that we really need to deal with and and you know need to face outward and not just inward. so I've, I've been doing public philosophy for about the last 15 years um, you know in writing for the general public in, just for the last few, really going out and directly engaging with science deniers, which is a different sort of an experience for a philosophy professor, I can tell you. (laughs) I started this whole journey by going to a flat earth convention. There were 650 flat earthers there. 650. 650. The
1: idea that there might be 650 people in the whole world. Who don't believe the earth is
0: round? Many more than that. Many, many these were just the ones in Denver. Right. Exactly. That, you know, at that time. Yeah. And, you know, I, I had to, now obviously I thought they were wrong, but I had to approach them in a way where I was, the whole first day of the conference, I kept my mouth shut. I had to be, approach them in such a way that they were free to express what they thought. And by doing that, Sometimes they gave me everything I needed to then ask them a devastating question. Now, there's a difference between planting the seed of doubt and getting somebody to tear off their lanyard and say, "What a fool I've been!" Yeah. <laughs> okay. That I didn't do that, and that's very hard to do in that kind of setting. You weren't hoping for that. Well, it would have been nice, but it was unrealistic because I went there. Look, I went there to learn. Mm. uh how to talk to science deniers and i wanted to start with the most elemental ones i could find because i thought if i could talk to them then i could talk to climate deniers mm. who are the ones i'm really worried about that you know then i could talk to anti-vaxxers yeah what was the experience like at the flat earth convention it was it was like nothing i'd ever experienced before I was incognito the first day. I had on the lanyard. I blend tried to blend in because I didn't want it. I was afraid that if they knew who I was, nobody would talk to me. Well, mm-hmm. I was very wrong about that. And it's the whole program started, and it was uh, like show business. It was not like an academic conference. There was music, lights, you know, clapping, you know, exhorting, and the media were there. And they were from the stage, you know, begging the media, stay, you know, all to 48 hours, you know, really learn. Don't just do a hit and run and go home and, uh, you know, write your story. Well, of course, after the first half hour, all the media left. And then somebody shut the doors and said, it's just us now. (laughs) And I thought, what's going to happen? What is about to happen at this very moment, you know? Um, But because I they still didn't know who i was they you know they went ahead and i got yeah. to see what this was all really about and it was only later that i started to understand the pattern the repetition it's a lot of slogans and you know different uh, things that they memorized from different people and then I uh, would ask when a speaker would just come down off the stage, I would ask them, well, do you have a few minutes? And they thought I was a fan, so of course they've got a few minutes. But then after a few questions, they figured out, wait a minute. Uh, but but that, that, was, that was where I started to feel my confidence. That was where I started to feel you know, that I could do this. But it was still intimidating, because we would gather a crowd, and I was surrounded by people who either thought I was in cahoots with the devil, or crazy, or dangerous, But none of that, but the overriding thing that happened was that they wanted to convert me. Mm. They, just in the same way that I was there to look at them, they regarded me as kind of a subject. Well, if you're already here, you're already halfway in the door. If we just tell you, uh, you know, we can just work on you for two days, we can get you to convert, and, and that, that, was very, that was
1: fascinating. And what amazed me was they were suggesting to one another the very same techniques that you and I have been talking about. That's right. L- that, don't that, yell at the other person. Don't insult them. The same thing. So, it, I mean, it's like we're, we're both primed to
0: have a real conversation. Why can't we? It, it floored me. That that, and that was one of the speakers that I took out to dinner. We spoke for two hours. What a smart guy he was. I mean, we disagreed about just about everything, but he was quite... I mean, he was teaching people how to do these street clinics to get people into flat earth. And so every time I used a technique on him, he knew that technique and would Mm. try to use it on me. It was really quite (laughs) fascinating. And so I would ask, well, then what evidence could prove that you were wrong? Why do you accept this evidence with no skepticism, but reject all other evidence, you know, on this side. And there was always a reason, always a reason, always a reason. And but in this conversation with this fellow over the two-hour dinner, it built up to the point where I think he understood. I, I I can't get in his head, but you, I saw in his face that he was uncomfortable with the fact that he couldn't answer some of the questions, mm. and and that was. Uh, exactly what he had just taught me on stage. Don't do a hit and run and try to, you know, convert immediately. Plant the seed of doubt. And then I made a mistake. I didn't follow up with him. I should have gotten his email and been his best friend for the next year and a half, but I, but I didn't. And that, and that's, that might have uh, made a difference. I don't know. But uh, I think of him from time to time. I, I did not dislike him. He was a, a very good dinner companion. My guest is Lee McIntyre,
1: who went to the Flat Earth Convention well-prepared. He had checked on the research of several social scientists who have studied what science deniers have in common.
0: They found, and this was fascinating to me, that all science denial is the same. They all follow the same basic strategy. They cherry-pick facts. They believe in conspiracy theories. They rely on fake experts while denigrating real experts. They engage in illogical reasoning. And here's my favorite. They expect science to be perfect. Meaning what? How does that play out? Meaning that unless that definitive study has been done to prove a result, they won't believe it, which of course reveals that they don't understand how science works oh. because it's not deductive logic. You know, they're, they're still waiting for that last scrap of evidence on climate change you know or or they you know they want to have the vaccines proven to be safe even aspirin uh, can't be proven to be safe i Mm. mean it's just it's an impossible standard and it insulates them from really having to accept anything that they don't want to accept the secret here is that science denial is not about facts it's about identity And when you attack their beliefs, you're attacking them as a person. So you would never, just in the same way you wouldn't attack somebody's religion and then expect them to change their mind, you've got to approach them so carefully uh, so that you build trust. And the
1: time it takes to be accepted is, I think, enormous. We had a wonderful conversation on the show with Christian Picciolini, who's devoted his life to helping people get out of the neo-Nazi movement. Yep. He was once a leader in that movement. He has sometimes spent two years in conversation, frequent conversations with someone before they That's were right. willing to give up the old beliefs. So that sounds like an enormous job. The people who are dedicated to spreading anti-science, anti-factual memes are using the web in ways that we don't seem to be able to the sensational notions travel faster and
0: capture more moss you you put your finger on the nub of the problem which is that the amplification of the the false ideas and here here's where it gets a little bit beyond what i wrote about in the book it does take a long time, a real investment, to try to convert somebody. Um, but you also have to think about this. Where did they get the information that converted them in the first place? And what I'm, what's bothering me more and more these days, as I'm seeing how this is going with COVID, is that there are a handful of people... Who are creating the disinformation for their own economic interest, for their own ideological, political interest, intentionally falsifying the information and then pumping it out to the crowd? Once it gets to the crowd and the crowd believes it, then it's virulent. You know, then you have to go through what you just said. You know, the the, the long game. The, the you know, one or two years, however long it would take to convert somebody out of that. So that, you know, I'm aware just on the, the cusp of having, launching my new book called How to Talk to a Science Denier, that my solution requires an army of people going out there and talking to the science deniers once they've already become convinced of something that is is false. How much better would it be if we could figure out a way to cut the disinformation off before it got to them. And that's the the real problem, as you say, the amplification, the internet, the social media, uh, certain media outlets that are just uh, pushing falsehood. I've, I've come to think of science deniers in some sense as victims, which makes it easier to empathize with them. Because somebody is profiting from their allegiance to a false idea, not always economically profiting. Sometimes it's ideologically. You know, there, there are people who want to polarize people around some issue. It doesn't really matter what issue, because then they've got their own army. And that's, that's the real danger here, because by the time these false ideas spread, it's very, very hard to convert them. It's difficult, though, to tell someone they're a victim. Yes, it is. I, I started my book with a quotation that's attributed to Mark Twain. It's easier to fool somebody than to convince them that they've been fooled.
1: <laughs> yeah, I forgot that. Yeah. That's why <laughs> that is so true. yeah, you you want to hang on to it so, to, to to prove you haven't been fooled. That's right. When we come back from our break, Lee McIntyre tells me that there's only one sure way, and it's a slow, painstaking way that can get a science denier to accept reality. Clear and Vivid can be downloaded for free because it's supported by our sponsors and by, as they say, people like you. But there are no people like you. You're you. We want to make sure you know about patreon.com slash clearandvivid. That's where, if you love hearing from the extraordinary guests we have on our shows, you can become a patron and get early access to special videos. And at the highest tier, you can join me in our monthly get-together online. I think you'll find out that the listeners to our podcast are often as much fun to hear from as our guests. We're grateful to you all. Thank you. And don't forget to check out patreon.com slash clearandvivid. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Lee McIntyre. So what about sending out the army of people who, <laughs> who are going to talk to the other people? Yeah. It probably is not as hard as it seems to get people to want to turn to the neighbors or the people next to them at the dinner table yeah. and talk. It's harder, I think, to overcome one's initial instinct to be very aggressive about the way you speak to the other person and even if you dedicate yourself let's talk about this one specific moment which is a turning point in the conversation you dedicate yourself to asking questions that don't have an insulting tone in your voice or words and then at a certain point there's a kind of a desire and maybe a need to close the deal Mm -hmm. (laughs) to let the other person know, look, I'm asking you questions to find out how you see this. Now I've got to let you know, I see it a different way. And I want you to be able to hear what I'm saying. You're crossing over from listening to telling or at least it seems like that's the tendency. How do you do that without just delaying the impact of your insult? Because you got to do it. You can't just take their point of view and let it go at that. It's a funny
0: thing, people love to monologue, but then they get tired and they want some validation. They want to know, and you agree with me, right? Uh, You got to wait for that moment. If you wait for that moment, if you're patient and you wait for that moment, then you can say, well, I, I'm not sure I follow you here. Can you just answer a few questions? Um, how do you know that this is the case? Or what was your source for that? You know, and, and then, you know, that's in a way that you're trying to get more information, not necessarily making them defensive. I mean, look, they can know that you don't agree with them from the very beginning. Mm. Um, th- that's not a problem. I think the Piccolini example is is a good one. I read another book along those lines by Eli Saslau called Rising Out of Hatred, where a Mm. a young man in the white supremacy movement was uh, converted through a a group of uh, Jewish students at his college who invited him to Shabbat dinner every Saturday and befriended him and eventually converted him. Mm. So, I mean, he knew going into it that they didn't agree with him. Um, It was a matter of how they did it. So it's I'll tell you the the secret the secret is to fight your own instinct to want to be right and just tell the other person off and then if they don't agree with you walk away. That's that's the hardest part of this. It's not a comfortable conversation. You have to be willing to be around people who disagree with you. But if you handle it calmly and you don't get upset Uh, people will in return usually uh, treat you with respect as well. So it's not quite as searing. Um, I had one friend suggest to me that it was probably easier to talk to a stranger who didn't trust you than a family member who did Uh, If you had a history with that, you know, uncle or, you know, across the Thanksgiving table that, you know, they could just say whatever they wanted and put you in your place and, you know, weren't going to listen. But but I'll tell you, if you read the anecdotal accounts, um, in writing this book, I I read all the anecdotal accounts I could because there's really no scientific literature on this, of the anti-vaxxers and the climate deniers who changed their mind, and they all changed it in exactly the same way. They, Which is what? Engagement with someone that they grew to trust. Mm. Every single one of them, it was, sometimes it was a scientist, sometimes it was a family member. But if that person took the time to you know, speak to them as a human being, not like they were crazy or stupid, and certainly didn't say that, um, they had a better shot. It doesn't always work. It doesn't usually work, but it's the only thing that can work. Insulting doesn't work. Shoving facts down somebody's throat just does not work. That's why
1: the debate form of conversation doesn't seem effective to me. And I'm curious to know what you think about it. Because if you say, I'm going to overwhelm you in this debate Mm -hmm. and you're going to have to agree with me, even if they agree with you, you haven't really got their allegiance. You haven't won them over. It seems to me. Whereas if you can find anything to agree with them on Mm -hmm. along the way Mm -hmm. and genuinely say, my God, you and I feel the same way about that. I I think there's a greater hope for connection and, and trust yeah. What, what do you think? Uh, do, you, right.
0: do, do you like am it? Am I wrong about the debate no, thing? I, Is that effective? I, I think you're right about debates because what's the point of a debate? It's to win. And there's an audience there. Mm. You're, you're causing massive damage if you let a science denier have the platform next to you and spread their lies to an audience. I love to watch those debates, the Bill Nye versus uh, Ken Ham. I mean, those are fascinating to me, but they don't actually work. All they do is amplify the denier's message. The thing that
1: troubles me about the debate form is that while it's, as you say, or as you imply, it's good entertainment Mm -hmm. to see a clash of ideas, but when it takes place not on a stage for an audience— who's amused for one reason or another, either they're for or against it, when it's used, when that form of dialogue is used in an actual one-on-one conversation, Mm -hmm. that's where I I get worried because you're, you're saying, if I win this argument, if I force you to acquiesce to my argument because you can't find an answer to it, then I've won and you've lost and even if they stop talking, they go they walk away feeling that they've lost. And that trust, it seems to me is affected by that. What,
0: how do you feel you, about you that? Don't, you don't wanna close the deal in the conversation. You don't wanna get them to admit they were wrong. Uh-huh. You want them to start to doubt and walk away and then their own brain will work on it. And then later they'll come back and say, I guess you were right. I'll give you an example of this. Um, Jim Bridenstine was a uh, rock-rib Republican um, uh, House member who gave a speech on the, you know, the floor of the House, I forget the year, but uh, a few years back, that uh, with all the things that climate deniers say, you know, that it there's been no uh, warming in the last 10 years, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera you know, all, all the things. And then so, of course, Trump appointed him as the head of NASA. Um, and Bridenstine, when he became head of NASA, changed his mind on climate change within a few months. Now, how did that happen? Mm. And How did it happen? Th- well, he said, well, he read a lot. Okay, I'm sure he did. And he read a lot before. But here's what I think happened. He changed his mind because suddenly he was surrounded by the NASA scientists that he had been denigrating before. Maybe he didn't know any scientists, and so it was easy to say, oh, they're pinheads, what do they know? But when he was their boss, when he was around them at the water cooler, over lunch, supervising them, you know, just hanging out with them, he, I I think he started to learn that they're warm and trustworthy people and they're careful. And once that identity began to change, then his beliefs began to change. I find that a very hopeful thing. That
1: word warm comes up a few times, Mm -hmm. repeatedly, in fact, when you describe instances in your book of people who have switched Mm -hmm. their opinion from anti-science to accepting science. The people they talked with were warm. That's right which is, uh, rather than saying to yourself, I must not be vicious in this conversation, I must not be insulting, it might be a better target to say, I got to find a way to be warm. I got to find a way to support the other person, rather than feel sorry for them, but to give them strength.
0: And and, and not to support them in their false belief, because you never want to pretend that you agree with them, because that could make it worse but but as you said as a human being right as some yeah, and 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 on things you can agree on things you can agree on and and the other thing that can happen is people can find common ground on ignorance and uncertainty to be able to say well you know no science doesn't know everything about you know such mm. and such and then that builds credibility i i remember here recently uh, frank luntz the gop pollster did a uh, did a focus group with uh, 19 or 20 um, Republicans who would not, who, who didn't want to take the COVID vaccine, they weren't vaccine deniers, but they they were skeptical at least. And he was trying to find a message that would work with them. And the message that worked well, I think that one thing that really worked is just by listening to them and and being warm, uh, you know that. Put them in mind to to change their mind because by the end all nineteen of them said that they were more likely to take the vaccine. But here's the message that worked: there was uh, a scientist I forget his name now, who spoke to them in such an engaging manner about um, what science didn't know and how mm-hmm. difficult it was when there was uncertainty to know what to recommend. You know, ad- admitting you know, having the humility to admit that, you know, we haven't proven this, but here's what we think is true, and why do we think it's true? Because of this evidence. That was what did it. When Luntz interviewed them afterward, they said, no, that guy, that's the one who convinced me. He was warm and engaging, and so trustworthy, and he helped them. That's remarkable. That's a great example. How you achieve becoming a person like that is... A... I, I do not know. But, but I'm telling you, the anecdotal literature is out there. Um, Jay Inslee, the governor of uh, Washington, sent a bunch of public health officials down to Vancouver, Washington, during the measles outbreak a few years back, to talk to people. And one woman said that, you know, this scientist spent two hours with me explaining cell interaction on a whiteboard. And he was so kind and so, you know, I, I, I just, I felt overwhelmed by this. And, and you know, she, she decided to get her kids vaccinated. There's another account in the book about a, um, a physician in Canada uh, named Arno uh, Gagner. I'm probably mispronouncing his name. My French pronunciation is not terrific. But um, he, he would do the same sort of thing. And people would say, you know, I've never had a conversation like this. I feel so respected and I trust you. And now I'm going to get my child vaccinated. That's when Mm. people, when they're insulted, their mind closes up. I mean, they'll be, the sky can be blue and they can see it. They'll be damned if they'll admit it because they're angry. But if you can approach people in the right way, um, you have a shot. Now, I'm going to tell you, it is hard because it's easy to feel that anger inside at somebody who is um, a COVID denier. Mm. And how do you have that conversation? I mean, for one thing, how do you have that conversation face-to-face? I mean, if you're fully (laughs) vaccinated, wearing a mask, there's the irony, right? But, you know, as I've been doing publicity for the book, I've been hearing from people over, um, you know, email, which is not great. It's not face-to-face. But even there, people, well, some of the, nice letters, some in the middle, and some sort of challenge me and, you know, terrible. If it's not too terrible, I write them back with calm and courtesy. And we usually have an exchange back and forth that eventually they stop writing me. But that's okay, because I've treated them in a calm, respectful manner, given them some facts, and then have to leave it to them. Because I can't change their mind, I can create an environment in which they can change their own mind. But by writing to me and insulting me in their initial email, and I don't take the bait, um, I think I try to build up some credibility. It's exactly what I try to do at Flat Earth. Now, I'm not kidding myself. I'm sure they don't like me. I, I don't think I'm very good at this. I think there are a lot of people who are, who are better at this than I am, but I've been studying how it's done. And that's what my book is about. The subtitle is, you know, conversations with, you know, the book title is how to talk to, I didn't say how to convert them. It's how to talk to them. Other people can use this and I hope be more successful than I was. So what would be a couple of techniques that you've
1: come across that might work for those of us who want to go out and be part of the army of
0: truth? Yeah. Um, spend time in a setting in that is conducive to conversation and listen, and then ask a pointed question. A Pointed is the wrong word, a, you know, an important question. Like the one where I uh, would say, uh, what evidence could prove you wrong? I didn't ask that until they were ready for it. I mean, you, you remember Columbo, right? Columbo always had just one more question. But I mean, <laughs> that was always a zinger that... You know, they knew they were in trouble. You you don't want to quite do it that way, but um I, I guess the main thing, the, the main advice I'd give people is have the attitude when you go into this conversation of actual curiosity and compassion for the person. If you can do that, you might be able to convert them. And and before you do that, <clears throat> read the anecdotal literature. Get out there and Google you know, I was an anti-vaxxer, this is how I changed my mind, or I used to be a climate denier, this is how I changed my mind. You'll come up with loads of first-person accounts of people who will tell you how they were converted, and you can copy that. That's what Mm. I did. I'm right now trying to get more scientists interested in doing this, because I think that if more people met scientists, and if scientists knew how to have these conversations, they could be very effective.
1: That's why at the Center for Communicating Science, we teach how to have difficult conversations. I know you do. It takes thought and care and practice. There are people I love who can't raise a skeptical question with a denier without blasting them out of the water. There's a temptation to do that, and it's too easy to give in to it. We we all feel it. Something that occurs to me is, even if nobody changes their mind as a result of the kind of conversation we're talking about, at least we'll have promoted a series of civil conversations that might lead to more cooperation, even if there's no agreement on the issue. Uh,
0: th- that, that seems very sensible to me because polarization, you know, um, going off into your own silo, of information makes it easier to get radicalized on other conspiracy theories on other science denying theories so you know to keep people in the fold you know to keep to keep that line of communication not to cut somebody off that's uh, that's important uh, i don't i don't prune my facebook feed um, it can lead to some unpleasantness sometimes, but uh, I I I don't. I have blocked people on Twitter who I felt were abusive, but uh, so far Facebook has been okay.
1: Well, I'm I'm really glad you and I have had this conversation. It's it's inspiring. Well, we always we always end our show with seven quick questions. Here's
0: the first one: What do you wish you really understood? I, my entire life, I've been interested in physics, and I am not good enough at it that I could become a physicist. And I figure I want to live long enough that somebody explains the answer of the difference between relativity and quantum mechanics, how it's possible that they both have evidence in their favor, but they can't both be true. I just... I just bends my brain and i and i i just i want somebody i don't want to cook the meal i want somebody to serve me the meal and tell me this is how it turned out because i remember just being bothered by that when i first started to study physics
1: the second question oddly enough is how do you tell someone they have their facts wrong i think we can skip that question okay (laughs) we just (laughs) we just did that right? yeah The third question is: What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you?
0: Uh, that one. <laughs> is it really? <laughs> I don't know. The strangest question anybody has ever asked me. I guess I was at a um, uh, a talk one time, and and somebody asked me if I had a secret power, <laughs> and I and I thought about it for a minute, and I I took it metaphorically, and uh, I said. I understand dogs and dogs understand me. When I'm around a dog, I I get them and, and I can talk to them and even if I just I have a real rapport with dogs. That's my secret power. I've got I've got two seventy-five pound German shepherds laying here. They've been quiet the whole time, right? That's my secret know, power. You
1: know you need them to be quiet.
0: <laughs> I don't know about that. How do
1: you stop a compulsive talker? I don't know. Okay, next question. (laughs) Let's say you're at a dinner party and you're sitting next to someone you don't know. How do you strike
0: up a genuine conversation? Um, You look for something in common. My My mom was brilliant at this. My mom just passed away in March at the age of 96. And I always said that I could put her in a room with the doorman or the Queen of England, and she could make that person a friend because she knew how to do this. And and I, I've watched her do it my entire life, and I'm not precisely sure how she did it. I've gotten better at it over the years. It's it's a gift. Maybe it's a superpower. I don't know. <laughs> I really don't know. Next to last question, what gives you confidence um, young people. And I know that sounds like a cliche, but the, the activism, the interest that I've seen in young people and not just letting things slide and taking a real interest in their future and not just letting the world be a terrible place, but taking an active part and trying to make it better. That gives me confidence. I've got two kids who are in their 20s I'm very proud of both of them. They're both living their values. And that gives me a lot of confidence in the future. Last question. What book changed your life? Um, The World Book Encyclopedia. Uh, And the reason is this. My parents never went to college. And my dad was a working man, you know, got dirty for a living. But they saved up to buy the World Book Encyclopedia for the kids. And I I don't I didn't sit down and you know read every page, but that was it for me. I I knew in reading the World Book Encyclopedia, I would I especially loved the stories about science and philosophy. And that just dug really deep for me. And I over the years I thought. I want to be somebody who's remembered. I want to be somebody with a, you know, page in the encyclopedia. And look at all these scientists and philosophers, maybe that's what I should do. So that was a very influential book. And uh when my when my uh, uh mom passed, my dad passed 3 years ago at 94 when my mom passed, I got the world book encyclopedia from their house and it's now in my study because that is the book that the books that changed my life. That's great. Thank you. This
1: conversation has been
0: really rich and I
1: appreciate it
0: very much. I I do as well. I really enjoyed myself. Thank you so much for having me on and thank you for the work that you're doing uh, up in Stony Brook. Just absolutely terrific. And I I wish more people would uh, do that. Thank you. Thank you. Great to talk to you.
1: This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Lee McIntyre is a research fellow at the Center for Philosophy and History of Science at Boston University. The book we discussed is How to Talk to a Science Denier, conversations with flat earthers, climate deniers, and others who defy reason. Lee's previous books include Post-Truth and The Scientific Attitude. He's now at work on his second novel, which he describes as a crime thriller about a philosophy professor. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shedd, with help from our associate producer, Jean Chemey. Our sound engineer is Erica Huang, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, a very special guest. Not long after we recorded our conversation a few weeks ago, Carl Deisseroth was awarded the highest honor in medical science, the Lasker Award. That award is often the sign of a Nobel Prize to come. His research on dramatic new ways to see how the brain works has revolutionized neuroscience. But Carl Deisseroth doesn't confine himself to the lab. As a practicing psychiatrist, he has a deep appreciation of the suffering of people with brain disorders. Disorders he hopes his research will one day overcome.
0: So that's, I think, the real exciting thing. We're now going to be able to take advantage of all this beautiful human genetics that has found so many linkages of genes. to disorders, schizophrenia, autism, bipolar disorder, eating disorders. But where we can't quite make that final leap to what does it really mean, what's actually going wrong in the brain. Now we have access to ways of taking all that genetic information and looking at the intact circuits and gaining insight into how it all makes sense together. And so that's, that's not done yet. That's the promise of, of the future. That's what's going on right now.
1: Carl Dyseroth talking about his new book, Projections, stories not just of science, but of people